We're over halfway through our sermon series addressing some of the most difficult questions that people have about the Christian faith today. And so far, the topics that we've talked about have definitely been challenging. The first question we asked is, can there really be only one true religion? Christians would respond to that question, yes. The second question was, can we really trust the Bible? Again, Christians would say, yes. Last week, we asked, aren't science and faith incompatible? Don't we have to choose one or the other? And for that, the answer was no. We don't have to choose one or the other. And while those questions are certainly important, and those questions can be very intimidating for followers of Jesus as we try to show why it's reasonable to believe in God and why we believe what we believe, the question today that we talk about may be the toughest of them all. As you speak with a person who is skeptical of the Christian faith, there's a good chance that at one point or another they could ask, would a good and loving God really send people to hell? Would a good and loving God really send people to hell? Now, the other questions are absolutely difficult, but this one may be the one that makes us squirm the most. And because it makes us squirm, we're tempted to not talk about it at all, including preachers like me. And if we do choose to stick our neck out there and talk about it, we're tempted to soften what the Bible actually does say about it. But today we're going to tackle the question of hell and judgment head on as best as we can. And it is a sobering, it could even be a somewhat depressing topic. You may even leave here with more questions about it than you have right now. But I certainly hope and I certainly pray that talking about it and reading what Scripture has to say will be beneficial for us. So with that, open your Bibles to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, that'll be on page 708. And if you don't have a Bible to call your own, feel free to take one from the welcome desk in the lobby before you leave this morning. But before we do any reading... Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that your son died on the cross for us. That your son's suffering, your son's blood, your son's faithfulness, and your son's resurrection offer us eternal life. They offer us salvation, they offer us purpose, they offer us meaning, They offer us so much that we have to look forward to, but sometimes we don't really think as much about what your son Jesus saved us from. And God, I pray that as we consider that this morning, as we think about that this morning, that we would do so clearly, that we would do so humbly, uh, that we would do so with a sense of reverence for your word. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Now, we already admitted that many of us are tempted to just not ever think about the subject of hell, the subject of judgment, because those things make us uncomfortable. But the truth is that we can't get around hell and we can't get around judgment when we open our Bibles. Roughly 13 percent of Jesus's words were about hell and judgment. That's a pretty good chunk. Over half of his parables 
came back to hell and judgment. We talk about the parables a lot. These memorable teachings of Jesus, over half of them are about hell and judgment. So if the Bible devotes significant time to the question of hell and judgment, and teaching about hell and judgment characterized a significant part of Jesus' teaching, a significant part of Jesus' ministry, then why do we so often ignore it? We call ourselves Christians, people who follow Jesus, people who dedicate themselves to the teachings of Jesus, and yet we so often ignore these teachings of Jesus. We call ourselves Christians, people who are devoted to the words of the Bible, and yet we so often sweep under the rug a significant part of what the Bible talks about. Why? Why do we do that? Well, maybe there's several reasons. Maybe the problem is shame. When we talk about hell and judgment, we're scared that we're going to come across as backwards or crazy. And to be totally honest, it's kind of one of those parts of our faith that we're just a little bit embarrassed by, if we're really honest about it. It's kind of like when you have a new boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, and you're bringing them home for Thanksgiving for the first time. And you can't wait to introduce that person to grandpa. He's so wise. You can't wait to introduce that person to grandma. She's so kind. You can't wait to introduce that person to your cousins. They're so much fun. They were like your best friends growing up. Well, maybe grandpa is God's wisdom. Maybe grandma could represent God's love. Maybe the cousins could represent God's grace and God's mercy. And then you have the one crazy uncle. You don't want to introduce your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance to the crazy uncle because he's kind of out there. He's kind of weird. He's kind of obnoxious. You'd actually just be relieved if you didn't have to introduce them to the uncle at all. Well, hell could be the crazy uncle of the Christian faith. That one part of the family that we just wish we didn't have to introduce them to. The one part of the family that we wish just wouldn't come around. Simply put, we're ashamed of it. We don't want to be painted along with those charming people out at Westboro Baptist Church who picket at funerals and seem to believe that everyone is going to hell except for them. We don't want to admit that we believe in hell. There's a little bit of shame there. Maybe the problem isn't shame. Maybe the problem is deception. Maybe we've bought into the false teaching of universalism, that everyone ends up in heaven in one way or another by the time it's all said and done. Former megachurch pastor Rob Bell brought this back into the news several years ago with his book, Love Wins. Many people thought that book was this new and revolutionary understanding of the Christian faith when really it was just the same old false teaching that's been around for centuries with hipper packaging. Maybe the problem isn't shame. Maybe the problem is deception. We are tell ourselves that hell isn't real. Therefore, why talk about it? Maybe the problem is our own heartache, our own hurt. Because it pains us to consider that we have friends and neighbors and loved ones who, if they were to die today, according to the traditional teaching of hell, they would end up there. And the thought of that absolutely breaks our heart. And so we prefer to just not think about it. Now let me say this. It's a good thing to be hurt and heartbroken 
and agonize over the thought of people going to hell. That's a good thing. Because if the thought of someone created in God's image going to hell doesn't bring you immense sorrow, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. Maybe we don't talk about it because of our own hurt, our own heartache with the subject. Or maybe the problem is that we've just simply trivialized hell. When we picture it, we just think of silly, cartoonish depictions of Satan with tights and a pitchfork. And we get so used to those trivial depictions of hell in movies or music or TV shows that we simply kind of grow numb to it. And over time, we fail to grasp the seriousness of hell. But whatever our reasons may be for ignoring the topic, whatever ways we try to find around it, we as Christians must think about it. And we must talk about it. Part of what the Bible does is the Bible forces us to think about things we so often don't want to think about. It so often forces us to think about things that we'd rather ignore. But it forces us to think about the things that we very much need to look at. The things we very much need to consider. And hell is one of them. You know, we often talk about how the Bible is like a source of food and a source of nourishment to keep God's people healthy. And in real life, we don't stay healthy by just eating cake and ice cream all the time. If we want to be healthy, then sometimes we have to eat spinach, too. We might not like the spinach as much as the cake and the ice cream, but our parents or our spouses feed it to us for our own good. They feed it to us for our own health even though it might not be as sweet, even though it might not be as enjoyable, and even though it could even be a little bit harder to digest. Maybe hell is one of those things. It's not as sweet, it's not as enjoyable, but it's in God's word because we need to think about it for the sake of our own health and the sake of our own good as followers of Jesus. So, What does the Bible actually teach about hell? Well, truthfully, there isn't a whole lot about it in the Old Testament, if we're honest. Now, that kind of gets rid of that tired old argument that we've talked about plenty of times before, that the God of the Old Testament is mean and cranky and nasty, and the God of the New Testament is nice and polite. It gets rid of that tired old argument. So while in the Old Testament we don't see a ton of reference to hell as a place specifically, we do see a whole lot of talk about God's judgment. Consider a passage like Ezekiel chapter 32. As God is speaking to the nations, those who have oppressed his people, those who have played a role in the pain and the breaking up of his people Israel, God says that those nations are going to go down to the pit. That they'll be slain, fallen by the sword. He talks about the world below. He talks about Sheol, the closest thing we have in the Old Testament to an understanding of hell. So while Ezekiel talks a lot about judgment, we also see another passage like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In Daniel 12, 2, we see that the idea of God's judgment on the wicked is not just in this life, 
but it's even after death. Okay, well, what about the New Testament? The Old Testament doesn't say much, but the New Testament says quite a bit. The first place we turn is Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus' most extended teaching on hell. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When many people read Matthew 25, 31 through 46, they're tempted to just focus all their attention on what could be called the social justice aspect of this verse. People tend to place all the focus on Jesus's care for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned, especially if they're his disciples. Other parts of Matthew's gospel refer to the least of these as Jesus's followers, not just some vague understanding of the poor. And while Christians should absolutely be leading the charge to care for the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick, the imprisoned, the oppressed, no matter who they are, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, we absolutely should be leading that charge. And while Jesus makes clear that disciples who follow him show their love for him by loving those people, the hungry, the sick, the naked, the thirsty, the imprisoned. While all that stuff is true, this teaching is about something much, much bigger than just some vague idea of social justice or acts of charity or philanthropy. Matthew 25 is primarily teaching about judgment and hell. In the first few verses, we see Jesus sitting on a throne, calling all the nations before him and judging them. Because he is judge. Matthew says it's like separating sheep from goats. 
The sheep are those who show their love for Jesus by caring for all those people that Jesus just listed. And then, of course, they inherit eternal life. Jesus refers to that as kingdom. The goats are those who neglect those people in their time of need. And thus, Jesus says, are guilty of neglecting Jesus himself. And he says that they will inherit eternal punishment. And he compares it to fire. Now, fire isn't the only image often used to depict hell, even though it's the one we often think about the most. The New Testament can refer to hell like a garbage dump, Gehenna. It can refer to hell as a place of worms and maggots, worms and maggots that never die. The New Testament refers to it as darkness. It refers to it as complete and utter separation from God. Things outside of the Bible, like Dante's Inferno, describe hell as a series of rings where the punishment gets worse and worse the deeper you go. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes hell as a dark gray city where everyone lives miles apart from each other, millions of miles apart from each other. Now, when a skeptic hears all this stuff, Matthew 25, it's about hell and eternal fire and punishment and sheep and goats and judgment, this may be that time when the skeptic stops and asks some follow-up questions. They might ask something like, now wait a minute, do good people really deserve punishment? Do good people really deserve that kind of punishment? After all, there are lots of good people out there who aren't even Christians, and yet they do a better job of caring for the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned, they do a better job of that than the Christians do. Are you really going to say that they deserve punishment? Do they really deserve to go to hell? Now, the question with the problem with that question about do good people really deserve this type of punishment is it bases the criteria of judgment and heaven and hell on good people. Karl Marx once famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Heaven is an empty promise and hell is an empty threat. And it's all in the name of just making people behave, making people submit to those in positions of power and authority. It's just about making good, submissive people. But the problem with that question is that God's not after good people. That's the wrong criteria. God's not after good people. He's after something else. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. Another New Testament passage that talks about hell at length. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. 
as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, the emphasis is not on good people. Paul says the emphasis is on those who know God. Those who know God. He makes it about those who obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, not just good people. He makes it about people who believe the disciples' testimony about Jesus, not just people who were moral and followed the rules and did some good things from time to time. We see in 2 Thessalonians that God is not after good people. God's after people who know him. God's after people whose hearts and minds have been transformed by the power that only comes from the gospel itself. God's after people who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, who mark them as his people. Now, will these people do good works? Absolutely, they will do good works. Will they obey the words of Jesus in Matthew 25? Absolutely. Christians should absolutely be caring for the hungry and the poor and the naked and the imprisoned and the sick. That should be a result of being a follower of Jesus and being changed by the gospel and having the gift of the Holy Spirit. But make no mistake. Those people who inherit the kingdom of heaven will not inherit the kingdom of heaven because they were good people. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven because of Jesus. And because of Jesus alone. God's not after good people. God's after people who know him. Okay, well, another question that could come up at this point is, all right, sure, but does the punishment really even fit the crime? I mean, in Matthew 25, Jesus talked about eternal fire. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talked about eternal punishment, eternal destruction. I mean, is that really fair? Well, first things first. That exposes a faulty understanding of the seriousness of sin. All sin is rebellion against God. And that is not something that God takes lightly. And quite frankly, we're in no position to ask God whether or not the punishment for sin is fair. Now, some people take this question about eternal punishment and just... The way they have to wrestle with that, and they take it to the point of annihilationism. Annihilationism is the idea that when someone who doesn't know Jesus dies, they receive a fair amount of suffering for their sins. They receive a proportionate amount of punishment. And then once that's complete, once they've met the quota, once they've paid the debt that they owed, God annihilates them. It means they cease to suffer because they cease to exist. And while it is possible to embrace annihilationism and still respect the authority of the Bible, there are still some serious obstacles that one would have to consider to embrace that position. It's hard to get around what the Bible says about eternal punishment and eternal suffering and a fire that never burns out and worms that never die. Another question would be, well, doesn't all this talk of hell make God sound cruel? Doesn't it make God sound vicious? After all, in the basic question we're asking, isn't God supposed to be good and loving? That's what Christians talk about. Well, yes, God is good 
And God is loving. But the Bible also makes it abundantly clear that God is characterized by justice. And God's identity as loving and good, that identity goes hand in hand with God's identity as righteous and just. And if you only worship God for the characteristics that you like, you end up not worshiping God at all. You end up worshiping something that you created in your own image, that made it through all your filters. And on top of that, when we talk about hell and we ask the question, well, doesn't this make God sound cruel? We act as if God is some off-his-rocker psychopath out for blood. But that's not what we see in the Bible. God is not characterized by uncontrolled rage. He's characterized by justice. God is not the outraged mass shooter who loses all control of his faculties and punishes anyone and everyone around him, even those who are innocent. God's not like the pagan gods who punished humans, not out of a desire for justice, but out of personal grudges and personal vendetta. That's not the God of the Bible that we see at all. We don't see Zeus sitting on a cloud with a lightning bolt in hand, ready to throw it the second somebody messes up and watch them suffer and punish them all for the sake of kicks and giggles. We don't see that from God at all. A passage that illustrates this could be Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Is what God says. Consider 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That doesn't sound like a God of uncontrolled rage. That doesn't sound like a God who's just eagerly waiting to watch people suffer. That sounds like a God who's characterized by love and righteousness and justice all at the same time. And finally, if we're really honest about it, the idea of God being cruel because he punishes sin is a very limited perspective. I mean, think about it. For the survivor of the genocide in Rwanda who watched their entire family slaughtered before their eyes, a God who punishes isn't cruel. For that person, a God who doesn't punish, that God is cruel. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale who grew up in Bosnia and saw unspeakable violence in his life that many of us have never seen and most of us probably never will see. And Miroslav Volf writes that a God who does not punish wickedness, a God who does not punish sin, is not a God worthy of worship. The idea that God is cruel because he punishes sin, the idea that we don't really deserve this kind of punishment, the idea that there are good people out there, is God really going to punish them? The question of whether or not God's punishment is even fair or proportionate. Those are questions that simply 
we aren't entitled to answer. Another passage to consider in the New Testament is Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who neglects a poor man sitting outside his gate for his entire life. This poor man sits outside the gate. He begs for food. Dogs come and lick at his wounds because he is in such terrible physical condition. But eventually this poor man dies and is rewarded. Meanwhile, the rich man dies and is punished. And the moral of the story, as Jesus tells it, is directed at the Pharisees. The moral of the story is that they have failed to know God. And that's why they don't accept Jesus. They have failed to know the character of God. And they're like this rich man. But in this parable, we also learn something about those who are in hell from the rich man and from Lazarus, the poor man. Look at Luke 16, verse 24. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. In the parable, Jesus talks of the poor man sitting at Abraham's side. The poor man is named Lazarus. The rich man, of course, asks Abraham, send Lazarus to give me a drink of water. Again, we see that imagery of fire. As Abraham tells the rich man, no, this isn't possible. There's a chasm between us. We also see the rich man's response. Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. What we learn from the rich man about hell and judgment is that even now, Even as he's suffering, this rich man hasn't learned his lesson. Did you catch the way he talked about Lazarus? He still treats Lazarus like a lowly servant. Send him to give me a drink of water. That's what he's here for, right? To serve people like me? On top of that, it's almost as if he blames God at some level for his punishment. Send Lazarus to my brothers. That way they can hear what I'm going through. That way they can avoid it. Because obviously if I would have had more information, I would have treated Lazarus much differently. What we see here is that people are not dragged to hell kicking and screaming. Before his death, this rich man was stubborn and hardened and unrepentant. And it showed in the way that he treated the poor man. But even after his death, this rich man is stubborn and hardened and unrepentant and still treats the poor man like he's no better than the dogs who licked his wounds. Back to C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is a work of fiction. And C.S. Lewis writes that these people who are suffering in hell, that dark gray city where they all live millions of miles apart from each other, they're given the opportunity to get on a bus and go to heaven for a day. See what it's like. Kind of just test things out. So the people go, and as they step off the bus, Lewis writes that heaven is a place where the blades of the grass don't bend. Just an incredible piece of imagery. But then at the end of the day, 
those who rode the bus and got to visit heaven are given the opportunity. Do you want to stay? You can. Again, it's a work of fiction. And the people respond by saying, no, we don't want to stay. We'll go back to hell. God does not drag people to hell kicking and screaming. Those who go to hell are like that rich man, stubborn, hardened, and unrepentant. And God does not force them to go to hell. Now, there are still lots of questions that we can't answer with a topic like this, especially in one morning. Questions like, okay, well, what about those who never hear the gospel? People who never hear the name Jesus come from anyone's lips. People who never see a single page of the Bible. What happens to them? They don't know Jesus, but is it fair for God to punish them in some way for that? It's no fault of their own. Quite frankly, I don't know. There are debates that go back and forth about that. Each side has good points. Each side has weak points. But ultimately, we don't know. Preacher J. Vernon McGee writes, This is God's universe, and he is doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. At some point, we simply have to trust that God is just. It's that simple. At some point, we have to trust that God is just. And that the questions that we wonder about, the answers that we don't have, God does what is right. Even though our sense of right and our sense of justice is imperfect at best. So, taking this sobering, heavy topic and going from here, what do we think about as we walk out? Well, a few things. Number one. The idea of people created in God's image spending eternity in hell should send a chill up our spine. It should make us shudder thinking about it. I once went to a conference where the preacher was talking about hell and judgment and how one group of people is going to go there because they don't worship Jesus. And a woman who stood up in the front row started clapping. And I remember thinking to myself, why are we clapping? What is there to celebrate? What is there to be happy about? Talking about people who don't know Christ going to hell. Shouldn't we mourn and grieve when someone who doesn't know Christ goes to hell? And I'm not just talking about our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors and our co-workers. I'm not just talking about the people that we like. Every single human being. When one of them who doesn't know Christ dies, we should grieve and we should shudder and we should mourn. Our hearts should be broken at that moment. On top of that, this understanding of hell should make us view evangelism with even greater urgency and even greater fervor. If this stuff is true about hell, this teaching of hell that the Bible seems to offer, that not sharing the gospel is the cruelest thing a Christian could ever do, far more cruel than God punishing anyone. Carl F.H. Henry writes, 
The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. May we take it upon ourselves to get the gospel there in time. A third thing, which may seem kind of odd at first, is that this understanding of hell should encourage us to trust in God more in the face of evil and wickedness and destruction. That theologian we quoted earlier, Miroslav Volf from Bosnia, he argues that lack of belief in a God of vengeance secretly nourishes violence. What Volf is getting at is that if we don't believe in a God who punishes wickedness and punishes evil, it would be very tempting for us to take it into our own hands. If we believe in a God who punishes evil, it's a little bit easier for us to obey Jesus' words of turn the other cheek and love your enemies. Because justice isn't in our hands. Justice will be in God's. Paul writes of God, vengeance is mine. I shall repay. When we trust in a God who judges and a God who punishes, it relieves us of the need to do it ourselves. And finally, this understanding of hell should leave us more in awe of our salvation. More absolute awe of the salvation that we have through Christ. You know, sometimes people would accuse us of being inconsistent by affirming and insisting that God punishes sin, that God punishes evil, that God punishes wickedness, that God takes sin very seriously. It is rebellion against him and then having the audacity to claim, oh, well, yes, he does do all those things, but I get to go to heaven. I'm exempt from it. How does that work? How can we make that kind of claim? Surely none of us is claiming that we aren't sinners. Surely none of us is claiming that we're somehow above the punishment and the justice of God. Well, Martin Luther wrestled with that question himself. How can God be both gracious and just at the same time? I mean, think about it. To say that God is gracious, it means that God doesn't give people what they deserve. But to say that God is just... It means that God does give people what they deserve. How can God be both things at once? Aren't the two complete polar opposites? Well, the way that God can be both gracious and just at the same time, that way is shaped like a cross. On the cross, sin is still punished. Even those sinners are shown grace. And it's all because of Jesus. The perfect sacrifice that took the punishment that you and I deserved. That took hell for us so that we might not have to face it. One author says that the gospel can be summed up and that we were saved from God by God. Interesting thing to think about. As we leave here this morning, leaving with sobering thoughts challenging scripture, perhaps even heartbreaking realizations about some of our closest relationships. I pray that we wouldn't miss maybe the most important thing to consider as we talk about hell. Maybe that we wouldn't forget that hell is not just some place where other people are going, but hell is the place that God saved us from. 
that hell is the place that Jesus saved us from. And may we never, ever forget that. Let's pray. Father, all the time we talk about how grateful we are for salvation, how grateful we are for Jesus, how grateful we are for his blood and forgiveness and and mercy. And I'm sure we mean that when we say it. I'm sure we really are grateful. But it's also hard to be truly grateful when we forget what you saved us from. So God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, those of us who know you as Lord and Savior would just continually be in shock and surprise and awe and taken aback by the punishment that you took from us and put on your only begotten Son. Father, I pray that we would be heartbroken for those who die apart from Christ, that we wouldn't view it just as one of those unfortunate facts of life that we would view it as a tragedy, something to grieve, something to mourn, something to send a chill up our spines. Father, I pray that we would share your gospel with incredible urgency, that we would not take for granted the situation that we once were in, deserving punishment, and the situation that so many people around us are still in, deserving punishment. God, let us share the gospel boldly. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that your cross shows us how you can be both good and loving and righteous and just at the same time. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.